0: Bare-fisted brutality, fast-paced grappling, and high-level MMA competition years before its time. Today, we talk about Battlecade Extreme Fighting.
1: Crazy territory stories, double-crosses and swerves, pro wrestling history nerds.
0: OMG with a side of LOL, it's time to... STFU, what do these things even mean? I'm not with the hip youth, I'm old and decrepit. I'm here in my cave of knowledge, of wrestling knowledge, of MMA knowledge. What kind of crazy rant am I off on already? Who am I, what are we doing? My name is Nick Gossert, I am a pro wrestling promoter. I am a pro wrestling booker. I am more importantly for the day, a pro wrestling historian and I am here with a man that even geese fear that's right even geese fear it's Chago Bronson how are you duck duck goose
1: darling capital hello hippodromians welcome to the nerd channel that uh, you know does the deep dive into the bedrock of pro wrestling history and also the underpinnings of what made pro wrestling such as like MMA and carny shit and all things cool that we like so yeah, I'm
0: excited and rightfully so because as he hinted out there We are not just pro wrestling history nerds. We are MMA history nerds because there is so much overlap there is so much Connective tissue between the two sports. They both kind of grow out of the same place the same time the same everything they are connected whether the nerds in the MMA scene want to admit it or not, and today we're going to talk about what is kind of an obscure MMA promotion because it only lasted four shows. It never really took off beyond that, the rights to the video footage were not snatched up by Zufa and redistributed, so it's not on Fight Pass. have a hard time tracking it down on DVD, but thankfully since nobody gives a shit about it, you can find it on YouTube and watch along with us. What am I talking about? Why well, we are talking about Battlecade Extreme Fighting. Did you watch these when they were on back in the mid-90s? Oh my god, these were this was like
1: the pro wrestling equivalent of tape traders getting like, you know, the hot shit from Japan or whatever that you couldn't get anywhere locally. This was considered underground lore you know what I'm saying like I only knew one kid that had this stuff I think I've talked about it before Dave Saville but man he had all the tapes and dude these were amongst the most coveted because it was just some of the craziest fights that ever happened
0: people don't even know about And crazy fights and big name fighters and also innovations that influenced and shaped the sport because yes this was 1995 when the first one happened this was a time where if you missed it on pay-per-view you needed to know a guy who recorded it off a of pay-per-view and he would put two vhs players together and make you a copy or you would find a guy on an aol chat your room who was trying to trade tapes for something like you would you would find this back in these days because there wasn't a YouTube there weren't streaming services so if you wanted like Japanese MMA or Japanese pro wrestling you had to find some weirdo on the internet and like send them a check and it was just such a weird setup but it worked and yes as you can tell from these stories I am approximately 500 years old
1: Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, we used to even, before AOL, we used to do it through the, uh, people would put ads in the back of magazines and stuff. You
0: remember that for, like, tape traders? Oh, yeah. It was kind of like, uh, as a horror movie fan, I was in the same boat with Fangoria, where you'd, like, look in the back of Fangoria, and they would advertise direct sale VHS movies for, like, the really extreme and horrible shit that your mom and pop VHS uh, rental place would not carry, nor should they have and you would send you know, $30 cash hoping that this was legit and hoping that within five weeks of VHS tape would show up on your doorstep. Very similar concepts, very similar programs, and that is how we consumed media. So you darn kids with your internet, consider yourselves lucky because it's a lot easier these days. Well, hopefully you use your internet for
1: something good for a change like following along because you're about to get an education in the evolution of MMA, it was before its time, man, because you got to think, uh, UFC at this time, they were doing tournaments and style versus style, and it was very much raw and unrefined. And you're absolutely right. Several of the things that we think of as just commonplace and sort of the standard in MMA now, this is their genesis, right?
0: Exactly. You know, It was the first place where you heard the terms Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. It was the first place where you heard the term mixed martial arts it was the first time you had uh, commentators that actually understood the mix of the styles it wasn't karate versus boxing it was more well-rounded fighters everybody definitely was a specialist still in those days but it wasn't advertised like a blood sports tournament where you'd see taekwondo gym versus wrestler jeff so it did blaze a lot of trails. And a lot of the information I'm about to give you setting up for this comes from New York Times articles from 1995 and from MMA Origins, Extreme Fighting Blazes Trail for MMA in the US, written by T.P. Grant and published on bloodyelbow.com. This was still almost 10 years ago. It's still up there worth checking out. So extreme fighting developed at the same time and unaware of the UFC after producer Donald Zuckerman was shown some valid do -do fights on VHS. So this was a time when like, you know, you had the Gracie Challenge popping up in California. You'd start having VHSs from Brazil coming up with like the Gracies and their students and their cousins and their competitors trying to carve out the US market. So this crazy, wild, extreme sport starts getting in front of the eyes of the rich, the powerful, the influential, the people trying to find the next big thing to put on pay-per-view in the era of Jerry Springer and bum fights. So this was a wilder time in many ways. So everybody was looking for that next-level shock tactic event, and they thought this was it. And it could have been, man. I mean...
1: This is one of those cases where, like, the entire evolution of the sport could have gone in a completely different way because they were so ahead of the game. And I just want to uh, go back to something you said earlier and and make a nuance. You said this is the first place that Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was referenced. That's because in the UFC, they only referenced Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, right? And not
0: just Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. They referenced the Aleo Gracie, Horion Gracie, the Torrance Gracie Academy, which is a branding thing and we will talk about that a little bit more in depth as we get into some of these fights and the fighters because it's very interesting and very, uh, very deceitful in many ways. And it's fascinating to see how some people tried to corner the market on something and how they fought very hard and ultimately failed, but we'll, we'll get to that. So the first attempt at a show was set for April, 1994, which would have been just a few months after the first UFC. But the backer, John Schur at Polygram Entertainment, he went way over budget with Woodstock 2, which was a disaster across the board, and the extreme fighting pay-per-view fell apart without the backing money. But fortunately, Bob Guccione, founder of Penthouse, got on board to back it, which is why you see Penthouse girls all over the place during
1: production. I think that's probably a lot cooler than a bunch of stinky hippies from uh, second Woodstock. Although, talk about like a broad brush demographic. We're going to corner the hippie
0: market and we're going to corner
1: the cage fighting market, daddy. Yeah,
0: well, Woodstock 2 was it for hippies, that was the one where they were trying to get all of the top hit, the hit bands oh. and it was an unmitigated disaster. Nearly ended in a riot, which was very pro wrestling in its own way, but at the time getting penthouse as a backer was good broad stroke marketing on their part because a it was a financially stable brand money to spend a lot of the same demographic coming together particularly in those days so it was a good relationship up front on paper and to get the ball rolling but the biggest get for the show was john peretti who was introduced to zuckerman by gene labelle Peretti was a lifelong martial artist and had been a student of LaBelle's. Peretti was tasked with finding talent, and who, boy, did he. You'll hear more about the fighters as we get into the event, but he made one of the most stacked cards, and in fact cards plural over the course of this show's run, way better than what the UFC was putting together. It almost looked more like, you know, a pride type of event, where it was like, holy crap, you know, there is... Very few, uh, you know dead spots in the card So as you might have figured by what we're saying Gene LaBelle was the important connection for a lot of this He was the guy who introduced them to the matchmaker that made the show what it was He's the one that introduced them to the referee Gokar Chavichian who is another very important person We'll talk about him here in a moment. He did some commentary for him. tell us a little bit for those who don't know who gene labelle how would you sum him up in 30 seconds or less if that's even possible he's probably like the
1: era's equivalent of like john wayne of martial arts in america he had a hand in everyone from rowdy piper to carl parisian to ronda rousey he was and then he had a hand in hollywood he was one of the he was the guy when it came to american martial arts legitimate catch wrestling and judo in california and the west coast
0: and was also the most probably the most famous stuntman from you know the 60s 70s like anytime there's a bar fight scene because he, he had that guy of just like a tough goon type of uh, type of vibe So, anytime there's like a big bar brawl or like a biker fight, he made his living as a stuntman. He was a judo legend. He was like one of the first successful judo competitors in Japan. He infamously showed up wearing a pink gi because he washed his gi with a red shirt. Dumb move, but he, he made his impact. He was a pro wrestler, he was an instructor. So, yeah, the dude's a legend. We'll eventually do a series on him, which God only knows how many parts that will be. So, yes. We're being very quick with our sum sum up of who he was, but let's get back to the show itself. It was originally set for Madison Square Garden, which was a bold-as-fuck move. Damn! Yeah, because Madison Square Garden, um, let's just say it's a... Like, that's not a cheap building to run in. Like, that's a barely break-even running it for the exposure, even for big shows like the WWE. It is prohibitively expensive but they had penthouse money and a lot of, uh, you know, big dreams to go with it. But as with all MMA at the time, which really wasn't called MMA, it was either Valley Tudo, No, No Holds Barred, Ultimate Fighting, everybody was trying to find the new handle on it. But this was the show that coined the term MMA. You would have uh, Zuckerman and Peretti using the term MMA. That's This is the show where that came from. So, again, an innovation that comes from here. But New York Senator Roy Goodman caught wind of it, called it human cockfighting, as many did at the time, and put pressure on MSG to shut it down. The event was rescheduled for Brooklyn's Park Slope Armory, which was then revoked because of the Division of Military and Naval Affairs, taking away the lease as it, quote, would not be in New York's best interest, according to the New York Times. SEG, the UFC's owners, Bob Merowitz, also did everything in his power to keep them out of New York through his boxing connections. And in the end, the show was moved out of state, practically at the last minute, which is not great for ticket sales. So imagine having, full, even from a wrestling perspective, any sort of event. You have flights, you have hotels, you have People bringing their teams. You have sold tickets, and suddenly Ugh. you're not just moving it down the street. You're moving it several states over. That's a tough, uh, a tough pill to swallow, especially at the last minute when then it's hard to sell tickets. You know, three days out. Yeah. Oh, that
1: is just a death blow. But it, you know, I was going to say it, it's interesting because in modern times, it, correct me if I'm mistaken, New York was like maybe the last state. That sanctioned MMA? Oh, right? it was.
0: I mean, that was very much like modern times, if you will. Yeah. It was so. only in the last like 10 years that they really finally opened the door to it because New York is a boxing town. And boxing felt very threatened by MMA and did all those powerful figures. You know, this is, like I said, boxing held sway over the Athletic Commission all the way back to William Muldoon. So, a sport that's trying to compete with boxing head to head is going to face not just the logistic problems, but political barrier after political barrier. It took a very long time for MMA to appear in Madison Square Garden, 15, you know, 15-ish years after this first attempt.
1: Yeah, it's ironic that the attempts that the UFC made to, to block this and everybody made to block this just probably further delayed the ability to run in New York.
0: Yeah, politics whether it was and a lot of it did come from boxing fans it was a lot of like the puritan won't somebody think of the children but you know between that type of crowd the mont flanders types and the boxing you know heavy athletic commissions mma had a hard time running and this was true even for the ufc which was the top brand for, for at the time and still is They would constantly have to move venues, move towns, move everything at the last minute, which is why the UFC barely survived in the 90s and early 2000s. Yeah, and it's also
1: why a bunch of fighters from that era, my era, myself included, a bunch of our pro fights weren't sanctioned because we could not go, there were very few places that would sanction fights.
0: Yeah, Colorado. I lucked out in sort of a way, but it was also bad because Colorado was the birth of MMA. The first UFC was here, but the reason they did that is there was no athletic commission to govern fights, so it was an anything goes type of fucking thing. So you could legitimately be like, okay, cool. Well, at the you know at the goofball mart over here, we're gonna have the karate point fighting, the forms competition, the jujitsu, the uh, like American style kickboxing, you know, pretty much. Karate with uh, with boxing punches and then we're gonna have MMA fights and it would just it would be the weirdest goddamn thing. Nothing was sanctioned very little was recorded a Lot of like we're gonna have a 30 minute a 30 minute fight. No judges win lose or draw you know, UFC, early UFC rules where it was pretty much no eye gouging, no biting, where everybody leaves feeling completely fucked up out of their goddamn soul, myself included, um, or you'd be like on Indian reservations in New Mexico. It'd be, it'd be things like that. It'd be places without athletic commissions or places, again, like Indian reservations where they, you know, wanted the, the revenue and it's also a fun fuck you to the state around them. And for good reasons, I support that 100% yeah and
1: also like in california we had a lot of fights down where they do the longshoreman docks and these weren't sanctioned professional fights but i'm saying you know i don't think they get in trouble for it but let's just say people like maybe a certain mr Uh, huntington beach bad boy and a certain k1 champion named razor i was on many cards with these guys down there and you know they weren't sanctioned fights but they were fighting professionals for a lot of money it
0: reminds me of like guys and dolls but Fights instead of gambling. It's the oldest established permanent fighting system in New York. (laughs) Yeah, we're keeping that musical number in. So it's, yeah, but it was like that. It was, it was. it was. California didn't sanction
1: fights. Yeah. And these guys lived here and they didn't want to have to leave their state to get up, uh, to get some money on the weekend.
0: Exactly. And again, that's just on the lowest level. So when you bring it up to a TV pay-per-view level, it becomes a bigger obstacle. And from the New York Times on November 18th, Zuckerman was quoted as saying, I'm not telling you where. I really hate to be coy, but I don't need this governor calling another governor, so we're taking it out of state. So it was literally we're not even going to big-time announce this because he didn't want the New York governor and senator calling where they were going and saying like, dude, you need to get rid of these fucking people. They're they're, they're no good. They're just no gosh-darn good. So the event did take place on November 18th, 1995 in Wilmington, North Carolina. And also keep in mind that this took place between UFC 7 and the Ultimate Ultimate and just after World Combat Championship on October 17th, which featured Henzo Gracie winning a tournament. After all, it's not a tournament in the 90s without a Gracie. So we do see th- where this kind of falls in place in the mixed martial arts evolution and history. So UFC seven was still a bare knuckle event that was won by Marco Huas chopping down Paul Varlins with leg kicks, but it was still a time when they were doing tournaments, three you know three fight tournaments. They were doing no gloves. The rules were still very minimal but you would do those, like, 12-minute fights with, like, a three-minute overtime. Uh, The other other event I was talking about with World Combat Championship was the first attempt to do a non-UFC pay-per-view. They never ran a second show, won by Henzo Gracie, who, Henzo, a cousin of the more famous-at-the-time Gracie family, was the first one to kind of break out with his brand. He was the first cousin to kind of show a little bit more of an aggressive type of jiu-jitsu because at the time everybody had just been watching hoist. So they see a guy who, and I'm not trying to diminish his accomplishments or skill or his athleticism, but he was very much the stereotypical pull guard, you know, type of jiu-jitsu man fighting off the bottom. So when a guy like Henzo came out and just came at everybody like he was shot out of a fucking cannon, it was a very interesting market shift because then Henzo's instructional vhs tapes dropped and his academy because the helio henzo hoist group they were in california henzo was in new york yep. he was able to corner a opposite side of the country market and because at this time Fighting didn't have a lot of money in it It was very much like the old kung-fu movies where you would compete at a high level very publicly because then that would bring students to your door, that would sell VHS's, that would sell t-shirts, it was very indie wrestling in a way.
1: Yeah, and I always
0: thought it was like,
1: almost like the rap war of East Coast, West Coast with the the Gracie family a little bit, cause he did, like everything was almost like a defiant fuck you to the family in some way, right? Cause he like, he went to the East Coast, he had that aggressive like, top side style and we hadn't seen everyone else yet so it was just like oh there's this like passive use what they do against you style and then this guy's like submission you know he's like a a whirling dervish right
0: yeah because we hadn't really seen much else we'd heard about hickson if we had managed to get our hands on the valley to 94 fuck yeah but who the hell was able to get a hold of that you so you mostly were going off of the mythology and reputation so when you saw something a little bit different and you realize wait a minute there were there were other gracies than the one who came out of the gracie train to back to back uh, a hoist in the ufc this is how we were finding out about this because the politics and splits of gracie slash brazilian jiu-jitsu is like studying World War One, where it's endlessly complicated with different alliances and people turning against each other. And who the hell are these people over here? How are they connected to it? Why did this person turn on this person? It's like World War One mixed with like a, a documentary about, you know, the mafia. So, yeah, exactly. in one day we will dive into that, but we do not have the four hours today to really get deep into it. So, John Peretti put together this card. They were chased out of New York. They end up in North Carolina and they're doing something very different. They're doing rounds, they're doing gloves, they're doing a bit like a bit, bit of a better production. They're trying to make it look more like a sport and less like blood sport, which Is how the fight game is presented now and we can lay a lot of this at John Peretti's feet and now we're gonna start talking about the fights themselves. So the first fight of the card was Health Gracie versus Makoto Murayoko. So Health Gracie, uh, I always want to call this episode Wreck-It Ralph, and it's very interesting to see Health Gracie opening a pay-per-view card. He is Henzo's brother. He is from that side of the family and i feel like it probably was because the carlson team kind of dominated the, uh, the card for the most part with bookings but health they called him the pitbull and for very good reason he is an aggressive little maniac as is most of that side of the family his japanese opponent i didn't really find a lot about him online but we'll kind of get into it as we watch the fight So the first fight on the program was the Health Gracie versus Makoto Murioko. And I tried to find information about Makoto Murioko. I could find Jack with a side of shit. He is listed as 0-1-0 in most fighter databases. Uh, Leading into the fighter reductions, they claimed him to be 8-0 in a black belt in Kyokushin Karate and the champion of game-shoot wrestling and prayers to anyone trying to find information on him or anything else uh, we were talking about how health Gracie comes out with like that side of the family is always so intense him henzo high they always have what I called while we watched this I'm going to jail tonight eyes they are very intense people you know henzo was always the sweetest man I've ever met when I when at the time I trained with him but the guy will turn on a fucking dime and be like, well, your arms and neck are coming home with me tonight and not in a sexy way.
1: Yes, I, I can relate to the chap, but he, this is also what happened in the fighter introductions. It was a perfect microcosm because his, the opponent to Hal Gracie uh, said what a lot of tough guys at the bar say, oh, I don't, you know, this, is, this cage fighting, whatever, this isn't a sport to me. I'm here to kill. My shot's... You know, he was here to land the Dim Mach, and you know what? The, the finish was about what happens when a guy who thinks that they're gonna land some Kung Fu bullshit gets in there with a guy who knows
0: how to take somebody out. Because I am highly dubious, if you will, of his 8-0 record. Half was introduced with 12-0, that I do buy. Granted, these are not going to be like big pay-per-view fights, but the Gracie's were very well known for their anybody who wants to show up and fight, let's fucking fight attitude. Again, they were trying to grow their schools, grow their reputations, grow their VHS sales. I did have the Hal Gracie VHS tapes when I was in high school. They were actually pretty solid. Good drills on them. But this fight was a mismatch, a massacre. Not much of anything, but two things I want to point out that Gokar Chibichian was the referee for all of these. Gokar was, he's an Armenian wrestling and judo legend, a high-level trainer, and was connected to the show via Jean LaBelle. And the commentator, John Peretti, was a lifelong uh, martial artist who was also training with LaBelle. That's how he got the job. And I just find it delightful that both the commentator and the referee could probably have beaten half these fighters.
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, definitely they would have been 1-0 in this first round as well. But man, I will say this. It, it was a, a clear demonstration of the uh, variant of the style of jiu-jitsu. This aggressive... Using your jiu-jitsu as offense as opposed to defense, it was a very, very different visually.
0: Yeah, because we're so used to, at the time, seeing like Hoist be very defensive, going for just making that, that contact with a full, little bit of a front kick to the knee, just to make contact for his not great shoot, but it was enough to get the job done at the time. But Health comes out in a very different fashion. He comes out throwing hands he comes out throwing punches and connecting and we were talking about how the punches look a little weird because he's not he understands from being in fights that you don't throw boxing punches to fuck up your hands when all you're trying to do is set up the takedown so he's throwing these like very weird almost you know like like almost like slap hooks but with a closed fist but he's making contact he's making his opponent Marioko think about his face think about the punches landing And then, boom, body lock, outside trip. They go down so hard that Makoto's head bounced off the canvas like a fucking basketball.
1: Yep, and then once he got his hooks in on the back, then you saw him winging a couple real punches. Because then he was in a position where he knew he could safely land without risking breaking his hand. He popped him one, two, three off the back, flattened him out, got the choke. And he choked him out.
0: Yeah, I. It's it's something where you know he did have the back, and this is the days when this was allowed, because when you have the back and you're you know you, you're allowed to do it, whether it's a street fight or old MMA, you throw punches almost at where the neck meets the skull, where it's soft enough you're not going to hurt your hand, but holy shit, will you fuck that person up? He got the the rear naked, he rolled him over, and yeah, he, and the and, and Makoto is trying to throw punches from the back. Like a real schmuck. And instead of tapping out, he turns bright purple, he turns dark purple, he passes out. The referee saves him. Half Gracie won in the quickest of goddamn times. It was over before you could practically uh, finish your first beer.
1: Yeah, I mean, they probably booked this very well, if that's their goal, is to have that be your first sample of what this is going to be in a different flavor from the UFC. Here's our Gracie, and our Gracie is evil.
0: <laughs> so, the rules of extreme fighting morphed over time much quicker than the UFC. So, in the first extreme fighting, it was still bare knuckle, it was still one long round and then an overtime. But again, it found the five minute rounds, it found the the gloves much quicker than the UFC did. They kind of saw where the future of the sport was heading and they kind of took all the ideas and put them together to make it a sport that the UFC would then claim as its own years later.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think that what it shows is it was a very good job of reacting to the realities of running the first show. I mean, like we just saw in that match, the punches, Could not be thrown with full velocity Because he had to worry about Breaking his hands So I mean I could imagine if they're sitting there And they're analyzing okay what can we do better next time Well we want Hal to be able To wing them things So off this first match I'm already If I'm running this show I'm already thinking gloves So yeah it shows that they are Not just ahead of the game But they are reacting and
0: adapting As is the spirit of MMA Exactly up next was Harold German versus Igor Zinoviev. This was Harold German's only MMA fight so don't bother googling him thinking he went on to bigger and better things. Igor Zinoviev was one of the breakout stars of this show. Zinoviev was one of that crop of Russians who grew up in towards the end of the Soviet Union era was in the army became a Sambo and wrestling badass and then having very few um, prospects for making good money in the collapse of the Soviet era, came to the United States to teach martial arts, hoping to make a good impression, make uh, get good competition, make some uh, money for himself, and hopefully break into Hollywood as either a star or a stuntman, much better than what was happening back home. But this was his first recorded MMA fight. Granted, he probably had Way too many brutal sambo fights back in Russia to set the stage for this, but you know what? This is his American debut, his worldwide debut, listed with a record of 15 and 0. And the thing that cracked me up again, this is the days when you could show up and say any old bullshit and they would put it on your match graphic. Harold German claimed to be 17 and 0 in no holds barred fights. Um, I'm guessing he counted everything on the schoolyard when he was in elementary school.
1: Yeah, I mean, he just wanted, he's like, what is his record? Okay, give me a better record. Now, my question though, seriously, is Igor the first Sambo guy?
0: No, because he debuted um, after Oleg Tektarov Oleg Taktarov debuted in UFC 5, so there's about a year difference between okay. Zenovia and Taktarov's debut, but I feel like he kind of did get a little bit of coattail riding because he was also like a tough Russian. He had that like, that like Iceman, like fucking tough guy look to him. He was in great shape. Uh, so again, he was somebody like you look at him and you're like, yeah, we want that guy on the poster. And also to point out that this show was split into two tournaments. There were some kind of exhibition fights like the health fight, but there were two middleweight fights, two heavyweight fights to set up a championship. Smart to do the two-round tournaments instead of doing the three rounds because this is about the time when the UFC was having real problems with people getting hurt and dropping out. The kind of Steve Jenham rule of putting in alternates who had to fight before they could get a main spot. It's just a much easier way to do it, plus it establishes champions in two different divisions.
1: Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, the human body is highly likely not gonna be doing too good after it's had multiple fights against professionals in a single night. So, you know, the tournament format is flawed because it presupposes that the winner can keep fighting.
0: So the fight itself was um, another one-sided quick affair. Uh, They they came out and it's one of the greatest technical gaffes I have ever seen because they started with like a tight medium shot Thinking that there would be a little bit of a feeling out a little bit of a you know a little bit of moving around No Igor Zinoviev jumps in with a skipping sidekick like a fucking kung-fu movie star and sends German flying across the cage But because they were in such a tight shot, you could barely tell what just happened.
1: Yeah, the only way you can see that he kicked him so hard is he kicks off camera. And the entire cage that's behind them on camera reverberates because he obviously got kicked into it so hard. They missed that shot and then they didn't have a replay angle. That is lowercase.
0: Yep, big big time, and knocked him down. Got on top of him, Whew. and he did go. It's a very sambo thing of trying to go for a quick leg submission without really setting up the position first. Kind of the same thing that uh, fucked Ken Shamrock against Hoist Gracie in UFC one, where he went just immediately, almost like a. I'm gonna say reverse cowgirl mount, like a real pervert. But he kind of went, you know, like grabbed the leg, went for a knee bar from kind of a high standing position. He was going for it a little too quick. So he was, you know, he had his hip under the knee. So even a boxer, just squirming, was able to break out of it.
1: Yeah, but it just showed that he had, he felt he had his way with him. And I think what it is is he, as soon as he had him covering up on the ground, he went after the limb, and then that didn't work. So he just said, "Okay, uh, this time, once I get you covering up on the ground, I'm not stopping bringing the hammers." And that was a serious case of ground and power.
0: Yeah, he he was able to get out of the position. Uh, German was was able to get out of the leg lock and Zinoviev showed perfect balance by being able to just like from a bottom weird spot just um, immediately spin it around, get kind of a knee up, side control on German, and just started unloading. And when I'm saying unloading, like watch the fight, he was unloading his right hand on his face. And we were just talking about how uh, Gokar, the referee being a fighter himself, is doing perfect stoppages. He realized this guy's taking shots, the fight is about over, You give him enough of a window that there are no complaints, but stop it before serious damage can be done. So it really was a great stoppage. Very quick fight again, but that's what happens when you have a Sambo, and Empire State game champion, against a boxer who probably has never wrestled in his life.
1: Yes, and some production nerd probably got fired or demoted after that shot, and they are not going to let that happen again. So now they have two adjustments for the next show. And we have two vicious winners so far, so we're doing good.
0: And up next, we have the most bizarrely brutal fight I have seen in a long time, if that's the way to put it. The heavyweight tournament matchup between Gary Myers and Tom Glanville.
1: Dude, that was extreme fighting.
0: It really was. So couple of things we were uh, giggling at leading into this is how they listed Gary Myers' record as 150 and 1 or 150 and 0, depending on which graphic you uh, were paying more attention to. They clearly were including his Greco Roman records. They were including his accolades from the, the wrestling world. Because this man was a Greco Roman wrestler. I actually probably still is a Greco Roman wrestler, just probably retired. But. They were adding his, they're, they're clearly padding the stats, where it's not MMA stats, it's your competitive stats. And then listed the other guy at like, what, six in a row, seven in a row, something yeah. like that. And would you call this a competitive match? It was the longest fight of the night so far, at almost three minutes. But I would not say it was competitive.
1: I would say it was one of the most brutal things I've ever seen, and it probably is responsible for the implementation of new rules because that was some
0: brutal shit. So, they kind of circled each other. Um, Glanville was throwing some kicks. Uh, Meyer eventually closed the gap, got a Greco-Roman throw, which almost ended with him in the mount, but he handled it well, put the, his opponent, Glanville, on his back, pushed him up against the cage. Glanville was actually doing fairly well. He was like clearly trying to... Uh, wear him down for a triangle but he was just kind of stuck you know he had the one leg up and over he wasn't pulling it down he wasn't doing the he wasn't uh, you know know, wiping the windshield as some teachers would say he was up on his shoulders he wasn't swiveling but also when you have a greco-roman wrestler of that size and that build because Myers is built like a beer cake he's one of those short squat guys that if they know what they're doing is the worst goddamn body type to wrestle against
1: Yeah, and it got bad from that point because that triangle, he had that over grip with his feet laced and he got extended so his hips were up. One solid knee to the spine broke the hold and he flipped over. Uh, Myers got on top and that was one of the nastiest things I've ever seen. He had his forearm, so, so he had his man pressed so his back was on the mat and his head was against the cage. He had his forearm on his throat and he took his fingers and hooked them into the fencing, and was using them as extra leverage with his forearm like a crowbar on the guy's neck, and it was fucking brutal, and then he pinned him down like that with his arms, and his fingers hooked into the cage
0: across his throat, and started
1: headbutting him
0: for the finish, it was fucking metal, dude. Yeah, it was metal, because he was like, he wasn't head-butting, he was head-banging. Oh. So he had the, his opponent down, like you are saying, from side control, up against the fence, Fingers laced into the fence and pressing down on his throat with all that extra leverage from you know holding onto the fence, and then shifted so he had both hands on the uh, on the fence, using that leverage to pull him down. So it's almost like doing like uh, like a kettlebell curl where you're pressing down to hold him down, and then using your biceps to pull yourself in faster and stronger to land several headbutts. And and broke that up, awarded the TKO and rightfully so. Holy shit, and that's a big reason why modern MMA does not allow you to grab the fence.
1: Or headbutt, because that was uh, two... Yeah, if I'm taking my notes, we're in match three, and now there's two additional rules that I'm going to have for next time, because that guy's face, like, another f- tremendous stoppage. Because legitimately, those headbutts, those are the kind of things that you see in the movies where some, like, in uh, uh, Gangs in New York... When he's headbutting him when he's on the ground and it doesn't legitimately five more of those, his face would have been paced. Oh
0: yeah, and he was on the canvas being treated by the doctors for probably longer than the fight actually went.
1: Yeah, I would not be surprised if his if his uh, eye orbital or something in that effect got caved in. And if not, it was close. Good stoppage. This referee is really tremendous.
0: And now we move on to the next fight and another one of those like birth of a legend type of uh, type of fights because the second middleweight tournament fight to determine who was going to go up against Igor Zinoviev was Mario Sperry versus Rudyard Moncayo. And if you know anything about MMA, you know that Rudyard Moncayo was not the guy. It's very funny too, Rudyard Moncayo was listed as 7-0 and zero, despite his only previous mma appearance being at ufc six where he ate the biggest running front kick i've ever seen from patrick smith that uh so yeah so i clearly saw a one so that seven and O oh is not exactly the case mario sperry was listed at 272 and zero clearly taking in his entire jujitsu career and Mario Sperry was the first one on this card and the first one in American MMA from the Carlson Gracie team. We'll talk a little bit more in depth about who Carlson Gracie was uh, here in a little bit. But this was showing the first, it was the first demonstration of the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu team that was going to dominate the sport for the next 10 years.
1: Yeah, and it's also now, its the plot thickens, right? This is another branch of the House of Gracie, and and it really, it really, it's like the evolution started here of where all of those branches started to publicly be known.
0: And if you are still kind of unfamiliar with the Carlson Gracie kind of student lineage, if you watched Pride, you know, Ricardo Arona, you know, Vitor Belfort, you know, Mario Sperry, you know, many others like that, that, dominated as far as the Brazilians were concerned for quite a while. Granted, you know, you did have the the you know the shoot-a-box rivalry. There's a lot of details in there that we can go into. But yeah, just know that this was kind of the American genesis of the Carlson Gracie lineage that dominated the sport for a very long time.
1: Yeah Carlson Gracie's team definitely probably has the most accomplished uh History now out of any of the branches, right? Oh, yeah,
0: worldwide MMA, particularly in Japan. Um, you know, Marilla Bustamante was a UFC champ kind of during their dark ages, but hey, he was still a UFC champ, and he was also fighting in a weight class he could barely gain weight to make.
1: Yeah, and Vitor, like you said, Arona, these are some of the guys that are considered, you know, people we remember today and some of the greats.
0: And Mario Sperry here against Rudy Marcaio was the first one. And, who oh boy, I don't, I don't want to say something was booked as a mismatch intentionally, but either way, it was a mismatch. So another thing about Sperry that I love is how relaxed to the point of bored he looks when he gets in there. If you watch Mario Sperry, he's never keyed up. He's never super intense. He looks like he's still, like, like he took an edible to sleep the night before. And he's really not fucking shaking it off right he still has like you know he might as well have come out there like still wearing like a sleeping gown and a little nightcap, like a Victorian uh, napper um, and he comes out there and he's against Roger Moncayo and who is was a very strong man he was a power lifter so that does play into the one good move that Moncayo had and the one thing that did impress me right out of the gate was the way that Sperry's footwork controlled the the standing portion
1: oh yeah he was very smooth he, he, he didn't chase. He continuously cut his man off and continu- slowly sieved away the space and the angle. And by the time they came around the cage a couple times, he had the space taken away, threw a couple shots, closed the distance, leg trip, down to the mount, grapevine, and he just worked him.
0: Yeah, he, he was another one of those jiu-jitsu guys that would be aggressive to get you where he wants you, but then would slow cook you. Like, he wasn't trying to, like, go submission 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 he wasn't like a like a catch wrestling you know type of go 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 he had the mount and he knew he had the mount and he knew his mount was strong so he'd be like just kind of work an arm work an arm work an arm okay don't have that mancayo did manage to bridge and got the top from guard for about five seconds got swept back on top for Sperry. Sperry, uh, was just kind of, you know, trying to just break his grip and then just started throwing, not, not he wasn't throwing murder hands. He wasn't throwing jackhammers. He was just pop, 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 just accuracy, accuracy, accuracy until Montoya tapped out. The crowd booed the fight because I think they wanted a bloodbath instead, probably wanted him to take like 10 more punches. But again, good stoppage by Chevician after the tap out from strikes.
1: Yeah, and it, it, like I said during when we were watching it, it reminds me of a sensei rolling with a, like a new guy because he was so relaxed and what he's doing is, this guy's a power lifter, he's an anaerobic all-star and he's letting him get all these little bursty explosive movements and blow, him, blow his load early and he's just weathering the storm, I'll work this, you defend that and that creates a little more space elimination, now I'm a little bit tighter in my position, start defending this, you defend that. And he was not, he didn't put all his eggs in one basket going after the arms. He just, like you said, slow cooked them. He got desperate. He got one explosive escape for about five seconds. And then it was like, teacher was like, bitch, do you know who I am? And he slapped him until he tapped. It was great.
0: Because here's the thing about grappling. You can have, you can be able to run, you know, 10 miles a day. You could be powerlifting. You could have all the strength, all the endurance from those type of things. But you get a good grappler in full mount on you in about 45 seconds to a minute, you're going to be exhausted because both psychologically and physically, it's a different game. You're going to be panicking because you're being smothered from the top. His technique's so good that you're going to panic because you're realizing you don't know how to get out of this. And then trying those just power bridges four or five times, Well, probably not, while being smothered, while your air is being taken away, you're going to gas out no matter what an athlete you are because you're not an athlete in this way.
1: Yeah, and it, it plays against you, your instincts there, because it's like being drowned without water. And each time you react to that submission, he defends it, he lets it go, but it takes away more space, and now you're in there even tighter. And eventually, you start reacting out of panic, which is high energy expenditure movements and the next thing you know you're cooked
0: and now it sets up a middleweight tournament final for a middleweight champion between Igor Zinoviev and Mario Sperry a very exciting matchup to this day so it's it's one of those first times where we see a championship between two very high skilled people in all arenas like usually in UFC you just see a good kickboxer get up against a good you know jiu-jitsu or wrestling man or you know somebody like Paul Varlins, who's just a big motherfucker against a guy like Marco who who's a good kickboxer so these are finally tournaments where we're seeing guys who are well-rounded and accomplished facing off in a final
1: yeah this is I'm excited man I don't remember how this ended so I'm legitimately hyped to watch this right now
0: but first they set up the heavyweight tournament Victor to whose record was a laughable 46-3. and three. I assume, again, that's his Sambo record. He's another Russian expat who came to the U.S. to compete. And he was up against another Carlson Gracie team mainstay, Conan Marcus Silvera, Conan being his nickname, who was listed at 26-0, and zero, which the way things were down in Brazil is probably a legit number with all of the inter-gym, Uh, combat that would happen almost nonstop so that does feel like these records feel solid if not a little misleading when they're listed as MMA records
1: yeah I think that's really the the thing that is not being differentiated these would be totally probably legitimate records if they explain because we're at the birthplace of mixed martial arts so you can't expect people to have these extensive records they should just note this is his record in his discipline.
0: And one thing I did find funny is Victor Tatarkin looks a looks a lot like Chael Soden if Chael Soden had his nose broken too many times and never got it properly set.
1: Hey, what are you trying to
0: say, dude? Oh yeah, no, we are both of the curved nose club here in this room. Um, yeah, it's <laughs> and, and these are, and we're probably in the same boat where my nose was broken four times and I only had it set by a doctor once, probably because I was <laughs> I was handcuffed to a gurney in Denver Health so uh there's a little story there we'll tell sometime not today but usually you get your nose broken and in that light of business it's like hey coach my nose is broken hold still ah all right get back in there you crazy kid
1: oh yeah i mean i've done it i've done it to myself you know that's that's part of the game when you're used to getting your nose broken and uh you, you know, it's a it's a flavor of authenticity similar to uh, cauliflower, I think. I was
0: very protective of my ears. Like, I would always wear ear guards, and a couple times, because where I trained, there was a Walgreens across the street, so I would always make sure I would have a syringe. So the, because I did get my ear popped and swelled up a few times, and I would immediately, like I'm pumping a well, just run in there, needle in the ear, suck out the blood, pour it in the sink, suck out the blood, shoot it in the sink, made the sink very gross. I'm polite. I washed it out. But that's why my ears uh, still look the way they do because I was as paranoid about them as I was about my teeth.
1: See, that's funny about that is, I, it's weird because the ears was the only, like my face, I have cauliflower face. Every <laughs> I have eight chipped teeth. I've broke my nose, eye, eye orbital, everything on my face. I was the same way. If you notice, I've got lumps, but I drain the shit yeah, out yeah, of yeah. my ears because so, I don't know why, but... Yeah, I didn't want cauliflower here for some odd reason. But, yes, Chango digresses.
0: Yeah, so we're going to move on to this fight. Um, and, again, this was another big debut for a Carlson Gracie team member. Yeah, so this fight was another one of those, like, a little under three minutes. And Turkin, uh, he did well in that. Like, you could tell he was really good based on the fact he didn't get fucking marked in, like, 45 seconds. He he clearly had been through some shit. He had very heavily wrapped ankles and knees. He had that Russian look of a man who saw some shit in his life. Uh you know, that very much that like haunted stare. Oh, yeah. And they came out uh Silvera I couldn't they didn't really show the weight difference, but there was clearly a size and weight difference. Silvera was a much bigger man. Landed a leg kick, they got in a tie up, and that was that wasn't just a throw. That was like Almost like a shoot rock bottom type of fucking thing. He picked him up and just boom, put, put his Russian opponent on the ground as hard as he possibly could.
1: Oh yeah, that was like how you slam your little brother when you catch him like touching your playboys or something.
0: Oh yeah, it was, yeah. It, it, had, it had some sass on it, if you will. And from there, it was just all Silvera. He got the back. And again, uh, uh, to target, he did well in that he was... It almost shook him off. He was able to get get to his toes, got his hips high. Was trying to shake him off. Tried rolling. Tried getting out of the position. You know what? A lot of people would have at high levels wouldn't have even gotten that far. And then uh, Conan got the top, and he did a little move that we both were like, "Oh shit, that's fantastic." Uh, he did a gift wrap, and if you don't know what that is, you're on top of a guy, you put your weight on their arm to, like, force their arm, like, around their own neck, like, they're giving themselves a halfway hug, you grab the wrist from the other side to secure it, and yes, I am doing that to myself, like, I'm demonstrating it to a goddamn class, like a freaking weirdo, and Silvera grabbed both arms and, like, did a double gift wrap, so it was like, his both elbows were pointing upwards while holding on to the wrist. And then what came next? He threw the nastiest, as you
1: said, like Wing Chun style downward elbow off of that grip. And we both popped because it was like, you could tell that was the kind of thing that would just break and shatter whatever it hit. It was glorious. Yeah,
0: because he's holding on to both of the wrists. So your your instinct, your body is trying to push against that as a defense. And then it was like again very Wing Chun. He just used the momentum of of, uh, of her to push up, to roll it, and slam an elbow down clean into his face. He rolled over another like downward elbow to the back of the head, Oof. which do not feel good. There's a reason those aren't allowed anymore. He got to like a like a half mount, and he just started unloading punches until the fight until he tapped out. I do notice. A lot of people are being smart and tapping to punches in this when they realize there's no way out. So that is something I, I do think is good when fighters do have that that cognizance of their their situation, that self-awareness to go, you know, I don't need ten more of these.
1: Yeah, and then also it was great timing because the the corner also threw in the towel right around that same time and the ref. Like, everyone kind of came to the same conclusion at that same point, this needs to stop. But that, you know, it's hard to understand the way we're explaining it, because it sounds like he just got dragged around, but it's like the guy in the Kung Fu movie that's able to fend off 99% of the stuff, and it's impressive that he didn't catch that fatal blow a lot sooner. He really did a tremendous job of kind of counter-fencing and surviving.
0: Yeah, again, it's like he did great in that he did he lasted three minutes instead of one.
1: Yeah, because, I mean, he was in there. This guy probably legitimately has, what, 30 to 50 pounds and three to five inches on his opponent.
0: And this now sets up Marcus Silvera versus Gary Myers, the Rucker Roma guy, uh, for the heavyweight championship match a little bit later in the night. And I don't think I mentioned this. Uh, one thing I found out that Gary Myers-Tom Glanville fight with the epic headbutt murders they would have a rematch at the fourth extreme fighting, which ended in a draw. I don't remember that one either. We'll eventually get there. But up next is the Carlson Gracie Jr. John Lewis fight. And this is important for so many, so many reasons. Because Carlson Gracie Jr., as you guessed, the son of Carlson Gracie, who was in turn the son of Carlos Gracie, aka the actual founder of Gracie Jiu Jitsu. Carlson was a formidable Vale Tudo fighter in the 50s and went on to train many of the top BJJ fighters of the late 90s, early 2000s. Many split off to form the Brazilian top team, whom Carlson bitterly referred to as Corrientes for their lack of loyalty. But what about his son? What about Carlson Jr.? He is unassuming a great way to describe the man's look. He, He looks like a cab driver. Like if you were like if you were going to like cast a movie where somebody was playing a somewhat tough accountant or a less tough taxi driver, you would cast this man. He's not built. He's not he's not ripped. He's not lean. He's balding, but still doesn't shave his head. So, you know, he does have the lineage. He does have the skill, but he doesn't have the look, which even though it is a real sport does count for something.
1: Yeah, and, but the other side of that is, what that tells me is he is about that life for real. He's not trying to hype himself up and look like a pro wrestler. This is a man who is the, son, the grandson of the grandmaster, the son of the sensei. He lives this. He breathes this. He doesn't have to try to... And jiu-jitsu is not about presenting false hubris, even though a lot of people at the high end do that. The true martial art component of it is... Humility and and if he represents that quite quite well, I think.
0: But on the other side of things was John Lewis. John Lewis, well, he didn't have the most dynamite fighting career. He was a very important figure, and therefore a very important trainer. Um, later on, he was trained by Andre Paninaris, so he had his jujitsu bona fides. And this fight, I remember, like again, everybody expected Gracie. Has the last name Gracie. He's a Gracie. He's going to fucking murder this guy. But that's not exactly what happened, and we're about to get into that.
1: Oh, I'm excited, man.
0: So this fight, if you watch it and you're not a grappler, if you're not a submission guy, you're not a jiu-jitsu guy, this, even to us, is not an entertaining fight, but it's a fascinating fight because it went the full 15. It then went to the full five minute overtime. But we saw some very strange things happen in this because right out of the gate, it was what you would expect a high paced jujitsu match to be. With a lot, you know, it was like takedown, sweeps, reversals. Uh, when Carlson was on the bottom, he was going for a lot of butterfly style sweeps. When he got on top, Lewis was, try, or like Lewis was trying to pass the guard. He was actually doing standing guard passes for the first time that I've see, you would see in MMA. He did almost catch uh, Carlson in pretty much a white belt level sweep. It was very shocking to see him get caught in that. But he did something that then would define the rest of the fight. He grabbed the cage.
1: Oh, man. It it changed the entire strategy and dynamic of MMA. One, the cage was about five feet high. It was like the height of a a top rope in a wrestling ring. And two... Both guys were using it almost like a gi. They were using it as a grip and they ended up staying... Both of them used it multiple times to prevent takedowns and they ended up being pretty much glued in a Greco position uh, uh, where uh, Carlson had him pinned up against the cage and the only thing that happened was some very serious headbutts and one of the coolest Europeans I've ever seen.
0: That made us both go wild because yeah... Once that initial ground scramble got back to their feet, Carlson Jr. pinned Lewis against the fence with, like, essentially a Greco-Roman hold, and he was holding onto the cage for leverage. Meanwhile, Lewis, and this is where we saw how short the cage was, because Lewis is a little over six foot, if I remember correctly, and he could just lean back with his arm up and over holding onto the back of the cage like the top rope of a wrestling or boxing ring and that's where they stayed for 90% of the fight with Carlson throwing wicked fucking headbutts at the side of John Lewis's head he was winding them up he was throwing headbutts the way that Mike Tyson throws hooks I can guarantee that John Lewis was not eating tough steaks for at least a couple of weeks but they just kind of held that position and and again, they were both being aided and hindered by the cage grabs because Carlson had the underhooks holding onto the cage. Lewis was leading back, holding onto the cage the other way. Whenever they hit the ground again, sweeps would be negated by holding onto the cage. They had very good scrambles, but then were back to that same position. The crowd hated it. But if you know what you're looking at, it, like I was comparing it to when we talk about the old... 1800s legitimate Greco-Roman matches where it was like, okay, they're going to work this cold for 45 minutes until somebody gets tired, but they didn't have enough time for anyone to get tired. Yeah,
1: but it definitely showed, I'm sure this was another match that facilitated rule changes that we now consider standard because one, the cage showed what can happen. It looked short. Because he was literally just leaning back and reaching over like it was the top rope or the top turnbuckle, negating probably 20 takedowns. And what Gracie was able to do was almost utilize it to, to dig his fingers into it and control it and keep his back pinned to it. So it was like almost like taking him on the ground and using it like a mat. It, it totally changed it. It made the ring like a gi. And it changed the dynamic of this fight, and the fight ended up in a place that I have never seen an MMA fight go.
0: And for good reason, because they wanted to avoid this at all cost. So this was a situation where Car- it was a win-lose despite being a draw because John Lewis won the optics war because he took a Gracie to deep water, and he didn't lose. He It was a draw. Carlson, on the other hand didn't win, and therefore was seen as like a weaker Gracie because of it. So Carlson Jr. would only have one other recorded MMA fight, also a draw. And Lewis is one of those guys who feels like more of a successful fighter than he was. He went 3-4-3 in his career overall, with losses to Jens Pulver, Romita Sato, and Kenny Monday. and those are not losses anyone could be ashamed of, especially in those days. But it was a showing in these events that cemented his status as a legend. He was also the first fighter managed by Dana White. When he And then he went on to train fighters like Chuck Liddell, Tito Ortiz, Frank Trigg, and many others.
1: Yeah, and I also want to say that uh, I would argue that none of the other Gracie's that have fought this far have had an opponent of this caliber.
0: Oh, easily. It was the first time in America that you saw somebody with a legit... Brazilian jiu-jitsu background fought a Gracie in MMA because for the longest time it was a again the Helio lineage Torrance Academy Gracie jiu-jitsu controlled the scene and there were fighters that probably legit could have won the first couple UFCs but because they were training at Hickson's Academy for example they were told if you go to compete against my brother I will never train you again. So at the time, all the doors would be shut in your face. Uh, It was pretty much until, you know, the Machados really started training people who would be fighting the Gracies that you really saw that type of thing happen. Because the Machados gave lessons to Ken Shamrock leading up to UFC 3, thinking, you know, Ken and Hoyce would be having a rematch at some point. It didn't happen that night. But that did open the door to fighters being able to train Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, knowing they would be fighting a Gracie.
1: Yeah, I have to say this match was a, a very fascinating window into an alternate reality of rule set because that, again, that took the fight to a different place than the modern rules would allow and that made for a fascinating and unique outcome.
0: And with that fight out of the way we now go on to the tournament finals they did the heavyweights first which i found surprising usually the heavyweights are the marquee heavyweights are the main event so to have the heavyweight first and then the middleweight set as the main event is very strange for the time so that brings us to the heavyweight tournament final to crown a heavyweight championship for battlecade extreme fighting between Conan Marcus Silvera and Greco-Roman specialist Gary Myers. And this is a heck of a wrestler versus jiu-jitsu man setup without it being the slow slow cook match like a uh, Dan Severn versus Hoist Gracie that we saw at UFC 4. So this is something where people were actually going to go, ooh, this should be exciting.
1: Yeah, and the other thing, heavyweights are always considered more attractive in terms of the fight public, and these are two big scary-looking motherfuckers.
0: And they're big scary motherfuckers who can move. So that's the that's going to be the difference.
1: Yeah, this is I'm actually legit very excited to see this.
0: This fight was phenomenal, especially or possibly because of the size difference. Myers again is like that keg barrel type of greco roma guy. Silvera is a much taller guy I, I don't know the weight difference they didn't really talk about that but they are have a big size difference and they just wh- fucking went for it it ended up with Meyer uh, Meyer on top of Silvera trying to go for a repeat um, he was once again holding onto the cage to avoid being turned avoid being swept and then went back to the system that paid off in his last fight cross uh put his forearm across silvera's throat and holding onto the cage for for leverage and trying to push down on that wall landing headbutts Going, oh, it was effective the
1: only difference was now he was doing it to a high level jiu-jitsu practitioner who was a lot bigger and stronger than him and he was inside the guard doing it and that was the saving grace
0: exactly so silvera did have both legs around him he was having trouble doing much with myers And a lot of it did come down to the fence grabbing. Something we were talking about while watching the fight is the sheer number of situations that were saved or prevented by cage grabs in this fight. And once again, it was almost like a tag team partner for everybody because there were so many ground situations where somebody was trying to pass guard, somebody was trying to sweep, somebody was going for a sub or was able to do a sub because of the cage grab. It, it gets almost the assist on almost everything we've seen in the major fights of this card.
1: Yeah, and then what was fascinating, and I think is very telling of how effective it was, there was a referee separation for a cut, which was the first one, um, and it it created a neutral restart, which ended up creating the opportunity for a finish, and we saw a very cool standing submission.
0: Exactly, that was another thing that you 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 can fall into a trap when you are built like Gary Myers because he's a Greco-Roman guy he's going for upper body grips not a double leg, he's going off of what works for him but he's fighting a guy who looked like he's about a foot taller than Myers so when he was coming in they got separated and one thing I just I want to bring up that to set up that submission calls back to the start of this fight we were kind of talking about the Gracie jiu-jitsu the Carlson team the Brazilian jiu-jitsu fighter stance even when they're aggressive They still kind of have the chin up, you know their hands kind of out Very much in that like old-timey boxing uh, stance Which would get you lit up by a good boxer, but they're looking to grapple So it was a lot of evolution in the sport since these days And Silvero was literally like, had his hands out, kind of like circling his fists like Popeye. And we both started talking shit about how he's not going to be able to do much with that. And he landed two perfect jabs that landed on Meyer's face before the tie-up. So, shows what the fuck we know sometimes.
1: Yeah, or shows how shitty a Greco guy who's a foot shorter is, is good at defending a a jab. Because he was definitely like... He was doing the Notre Dame fighting Irish for sure. And we're like, look at this, Jabari!" But the jabs was, pop
0: it was like, oh, shit, son. Yeah, it was a guy who was a short Greco-Roma guy. Big difference in height, difference in reach, and difference in experience. So this is a guy who, even though he was a high-level Greco-Roma guy, was down to scrap. Clearly wasn't good at head movements because it never really came up in his career And that's really what set up the finish because they were kind of separated throwing some punches and again Myers was coming in for a grunker Roman hold and Silvera caught him in a guillotine because you know, he was in the perfect spot for it because of the height difference and He d- and Myers did a rookie mistake a very wrestling mistake as opposed to a submission thing where he was more concentrating because Silvera had him under his left arm and Myers was putting all his attention on the left arm and not what the right arm was doing because if he had just stayed underhooked, he probably could have fought out of it, but he put both hands over trying to control Silvera's left arm so Silvera was able to reach down with his right, grab his left, and fully crank it from the standing. Perfect position for a standing guillotine. Tap out. Boom. Done.
1: No, oh, it was a you know, and it was another fascinating fight. It, it shows the necessity for the evolution of the rule set, and we were saying this too. Every single fight on this card had would have been this is this would have been a quality modern day card. This has been a hell of a hell of a card.
0: Oh, absolutely. This would you know this could stack up as a pay per view possibly to this day. Maybe like a, this would be one of those free TV cards for UFC, but it's still. For 1995, this is fucking phenomenal. John Peretti, once again, put together an amazing card, top to bottom. There really haven't been any, like, embarrassingly weak points. I mean, there's guys who got steamrolled, but it wasn't like, you know, you you didn't really have, like, the out-of-shape karate guy versus the taekwondo kid type of shit. It's guys who had... Kind of did have the background and the athleticism for this. They just got in, at, it got thrown in over their head, and you know they they didn't last. But overall, a great card. And Silvero was ch- crowned the champion of the heavyweight division, uh, which he you know he went on to defend in later shows. Uh, another you know a guy who also uh, had some notoriety in the UFC Japan for having two fights against Kazushi Sakuraba. Uh, an infamous situation where it was Sakuraba's first big MMA event, UFC Japan Silvera was throwing hands on him, Sakuraba dropped for the low ankle pick single leg, which he was very well known for John McCarthy thought he got KO'd stopped the fight and then because Tank Abbott was hurt couldn't do the uh, final Sakuraba actually came back and fought the same guy that beat him on a technicality for a rematch the same night, but that's a story for another time Sounds like some hippodroming
1: booking-a-me, old chap, but sometimes uh, the real thing just ends up that way.
0: And I looked up Gary Myers, and he would have a long career with fights in the WEF, Hook and Shoot, Pancrase, and IVC, with notable opponents like Malid Ishmael, Yuki Kondo, Jeremy Horn, Rich Franklin, and Carlos Barreto, and no, he didn't win any of those. And the fight with Barreto ended up with his leg being broken. And I need to track it down to see what happened for Myers to get a broken leg like that. So, he went on to fight a who's who um, of, of MMA at that time. Came up short every time. But those are, that's a still pretty impressive resume for your losses.
1: That's a messed up Greco joke.
0: And Barreto, I want to see especially his fight versus Carlos Barreto. Carlos Barreto was a big lanky jiu-jitsu man yeah. and something you were talking about the two body types that are the worst to compete against is a wrestler built like a beer keg and a jiu-jitsu man built like a basketball player
1: yep yeah, because one is about having superior torque and one is about having superior leverage and both
0: suck and now we move on to the main event of the night the middleweight final of the tournament Mario Sperry versus Igor Zinoviev Um, Again, it's strange to see the middleweights take the top of the card, but I feel like Peretti knew what Sperry was capable of. He probably knew what Zinoviev was capable of. He saw a very good Technical and explosive matchup and knew that maybe that's uh, that's the way we're gonna stack it If things are gonna go the way we think things are going to go. So yeah, two guys In shape. Experienced as fuck. Very dangerous on the ground. A hell of a way to finish off the night. Yeah, this may
1: be the best matchup in the fledgling MMA up to this point.
0: I mean, this is a
1: marquee, high-level match.
0: Oh yeah, this could have been a main event for the next probably five years.
1: I agree. Yeah, this is going to be some shit. I'm excited.
0: So the one term that comes to mind after watching this fight for the first time, probably since, like, 95, 96, is, holy fucking shit, what a fight. Dude,
1: that was fucking awesome on so many levels of analysis. First of all, Jiu-Jitsu versus Sambo was represented. Uh, Sperry is a legend. The The dynamic of the fight was crazy. The strategy and the, the philosophy of Sambo, where it's, the difference for a jiu jitsu guy is it's systematic. You use the position to set up a submission. Where Sambo's kind of like, catch, we will snatch some shit. He had full mount and he was still getting choked from the guy who didn't, and that tenacity paid off. That was some shit, man.
0: It's one of those fights that honestly could hold up today as like a, like a, a fucking five star fight. For the first time in an MMA pay-per-view in the United States, you had a high-paced style of grappling against a high-paced style of grappling, where the strategies are very different, but equally valid, because you had Mario Sperry, who's a slow cook jiu-jitsu specialist. He is aggressive. He will try to get that top game, but he's a get-you-down, wear-you-out, tap-you-out type of guy, whereas Zinoviev is one of those guys, like you were pointing out, where you could have him fully mounted, and he's still trying to get you in a guillotine for some fucking reason.
1: Yeah, and it worked because the strategy is so different. It threw him off. He got sweeps with that. He held onto that thing like a dog on a bone. He got a sweep on Mario Sperry that was like, you shouldn't be able to pull that off like a bully headlock, head and arm roll.
0: Yeah, he did essentially a on-the-mat headlock takeover wall mounted he managed to get hold of mario sperry one of the greatest jiu-jitsu men of all time and bridge and roll while holding a headlock to get him into like almost a side control i mean granted the holding onto the head was all that was keeping him from getting giving up his back it was very bad on a technical level but from a brute strength fuck you-ness to it it was quite the move
1: and it worked man and it worked and then You want to talk about tough. This motherfucker was standing there and he got goalpost heel kicked in the nuts so hard and he just straight
0: nose-sold it like a boss. Yeah, there was this. We'll get to that here in a second. But yeah, but this was also, you know, the first time we've seen two very different but highly trained, highly competitive grapplers. So we saw positioning. We saw reversals. We saw two strategies clashing that in... The other's world view would be a bad idea, but they make it work. We saw guard passes. We saw standing guard passes. We did see um, Zenovia definitely uh, benefit from grabbing the cage at one time, but that is the late motif of the night. But you know, this is the sort of shit that you did not see in the UFC because you never had this type of of style clashes. You never saw you. You'd see Dan Severin versus Gracie. You see Dan Severin versus you know, Oleg Tektarov. You saw uh, guys like Marco Huas, who was a good jiu-jitsu guy, but you never saw two fast-paced middleweights tearing it up, passing the guard, changing position, fighting off the mount, defending the mount, bridging, going to the guard, cutting through the guard. Like Sperry's guard passes in this are phenomenal, but you know what? Znoviev pulled off a couple himself, and it all led up to one of the weirdest, almost pro-wrestling style finishes you can imagine in MMA. They ended up back on their, on their feet to the, you know, Zenobia was, was facing the cage, holding on to the cage. Sperry was holding on to his back, throwing punches. And like you said, he threw a straight, you know, fucking punching the football dick kick from behind. We're not talking like a little bit of toe hitting the cup. We're talking like shin barely above the knee is the point of contact to the balls while giving him the old nut butt from behind. Yeah, and, and, and in, in
1: classic Russian fashion, he no that shit and just held onto the cage. And then it was remarkable because you see the, the wheels turning. Spirit goes, he says, okay, he's throwing these punches because the guy's just holding onto the cage. He says, okay, I'm going to jump on his neck, like and put myself across his shoulders like a fireman's carry position and grab his neck. And he jumped up. And he missed, and he goes over the top,
0: and he catches a knee. He literally hit him with the go-to-sleep. Yeah, it was it was like he gave himself the go-to-sleep. Because Sperry did try something interesting. Because you're know, learning from the uh, Carlson Jr., John Lewis match. He gets between the cage and Zenovia and is trying to push him out. But the grip on the cage was too strong. He goes back to the back, throws another couple of punches, and he jumps, trying to like get a jump chokehold, like jump on his back, like you know your annoying nephew does when he leaps off the couch. And they were so sweaty. And Zinoviev, like the height difference, like it wasn't a smart move, high-risk maneuver, as we would call it in wrestling. Misses, slides down, lands on his on his on his like hands and knees in front of Zinoviev, who gives him an attempted soccer kick but it was a knee that hit him right above the eyebrow busted him open like a motherfucker and then they fall down he gets a takedown but for a second i thought that maybe he was tapping to the guillotine he was in half you know half guard zinoviev had him in the guillotine where he'd been trying to wear him down all night you see sperry touch his forehead look at the blood and like touch the canvas and i was like that does. That wasn't a tap out. That was just. Mm-hmm. Why did they stop it? And then you see that it looked like Sperry was shot in the face.
1: Oh yeah, it looked like that. From the side of his nose, over his eyebrow to his hairline, was completely like he got hit with a chainsaw, man. Like a, like he. I bet that is a hell of a cool scar though.
0: Oh, it it one hundred percent because it was a hell of a shot. It ripped him <sighs> open and. After this, Zinoviev got the nickname Houdini because he spent fit almost 15 minutes just escaping everything that Sperry was throwing at him. Sperry was dominating the whole fight. If this was a judge's decision type of situation, he would have you know, been way up on the cards. It would have been like on the way to like a you 10-9 know, round. But Sperry decided to try to be ambitious, try to be creative, and went for a high-risk maneuver, and it did not pay out.
1: Yeah, you know, and turnabout's fair play because basically he got kicked in the same manner in the face that he just kicked him in the dick from behind, really. He got a punt, won this thing. And so, I mean, that was a hell of a fight, dude.
0: Oh, it was. And, you know, it, like there were it's one of those, like, there were no losers type of fight. Like, it's one of those fights where everybody makes their name off of it. I mean, that fight can 100% be why Sperry went on to be a mainstay in pride for years. Sperry was a tra- was pretty much the trainer for the Brazilian top team. Um, his name, as far as Jiu-Jitsu is concerned, he is a royalty, if not a god.
1: Yeah, and you know what? The, the impression I got from this overall is, this was modern MMA.
0: Exactly, this was the first time you saw well-rounded people from different countries and disciplines who were coming together to compete under rules that they understood and were experienced with. So you would have a good Greco-Roman guy against a good Jiu-Jitsu guy. You would have a Sambo guy against a Jiu-Jitsu guy. You would have Jiu-Jitsu versus a Japanese Kyokushin karate Judo guy. Maybe a bit of a mismatch there, but hey, it was still entertaining. And this really did change the game. And now we had champions. You had the Brazilian Marcus Conan Silvera as the heavyweight and Zinoviev as the middleweight. And there were three more of these. They definitely had their problems, even though they really rebounded on uh, parts three and four. Um, But unfortunately, it was not a sustainable business model. Keep in mind that the UFC almost went out of business every other show at the same time period. It was not a good time to be financially backing MMA. And Igor Zinoviev went on to defend his title, have other fights, before a serious injury during his fight against Frank Shamrock in the UFC essentially ended his career. He went on to be a bodyguard and an actor, and in no way should you ever feel bad for the guy because he was Jeffrey Epstein's personal bodyguard. Ew. You is right. I found that out this morning while finishing up my notes. Um, Found out, yeah, he was Epstein's bodyguard. So, yeah, while I do admire everything he did, up to the year 1998, after that, I'm just going to kind of pretend I don't know the guy. Just like I'm sure he's pretending he doesn't know Epstein.
1: Yeah, well, he obviously didn't do a very good job in the end. But, um, okay, this begs the question. what? And I don't know if the timing lines up exactly, but what if Zufa had backed these guys as opposed to bailing the UFC out at that time? It
0: was I mean they this company was out of the game by ninety-seven. They were defunct. Peretti actually went on to be the matchmaker for the UFC. Yeah. Um because yeah, he went on to be super influential in the sports, because clearly sure. he knew he how knew, to he's he, got it down. He, he knew who to talk to. He had the connections to get the good people. Um, when we review other of these, you'll see how it progressed immensely in bringing in talent. You know, when I usually run down to the names of guys who competed in, in Extreme Fighting, it's guys like Maurice Smith. It's guys like John Lober, It's guys like Eric Paulson, Matt Hume. It is a fucking who's who of the top guys at that time. So, yeah, John Peretti knew what he was doing. When they went under, he went over to the UFC He's the one who brought guys like Boss Rootin into the UFC. He was the guy who actually created the Boss Rootin Invitational. Um, he had a hand in the original Contenders Grappling Show, which, as we talked about before we recorded, we will 100% do an episode on because it was you know the old grappling-style mega tournaments that we talk about from the late 1800s and early 1900s where it was all the top wrestlers and Sambo and Catch-as-Catch-Can and jujitsu men coming together for a grappling tournament, kind of Abu Dhabi well before Abu Dhabi.
1: Yeah, I'm going to be very excited about that. But just for you modern MMA fans, keep this in mind. You hear about these legendary coaches, right? The Mileticches and the Matt Humes that are iconic. This is where these guys fought, man. Right? Like, this is where The guys that train the names that you know of as the legends, this is, in extreme fighting, I mean, this is where some of these guys, we first got to see them. And it was because the UFC didn't want
0: that smoke because they knew that these were bad matchups for their boys. Oh, yeah. This was, again, this was a time, and this was the only time they did a tournament. They went on to single match cards after this. Again, well before the UFC started doing that. So this was really the the obscure show that the UFC was taking all the notes from and put that towards their success. But the business model of MMA in the late 90s was an absolute shit show. So even great shows went under and that's just the way it was. Well,
1: I have to say that was something beautiful to watch again with modern eyes because you can totally see it was like we said. That was the genesis of modern martial arts. That wasn't style versus style. The finishes were complex and multi-layered. There was striking to set up submissions and takedowns, and it was a blending of styles. And we saw we saw the uh, the famed Gracie lineage fall. We saw so many things that set new precedents. We saw Jiu-Jitsu get beat by sambo, and dude, that was.
0: Awesome. Yeah, it changed the game in so many ways. And you if you're intrigued, if you you know if you never watched this show or you haven't watched it since, you know, the 90s, you can find it on YouTube. Most of the rips are from VHS, so they're not the best resolution, but they're still very watchable. I recommend it if you are a fan of MMA or just a history nerd like us of martial arts. Go ahead and check it out. But For now, we're going to call it a day. Thank you for joining us on this journey of Battlecade Extreme Fighting from 1995. Uh, We'll be back in two weeks with uh, another story of some kind. I haven't decided. This is the bad part about being me. I come up with 500 ideas. I work on 500 ideas. And then I have to go at the last minute. Oh shit, I need to polish one of these up real fast. And I just show up
1: and do whatever the play is called and
0: we have a great time, nerds. It's true, he does, and I resent him for it. But for now, for today, my name is Nick Gossert for Chongo Bronson. Good night, everyone. We'll talk to you next time.
1: Yes. Peace, love, and world peace, love. (laughs)